Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this edition, we present the Sovereign Defence Industry Breakfast Panel discussion, hosted recently in Canberra by Managing Editor Catherine Ziesing. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and in this episode, we are presenting the audio from the Sovereign Defence Industry Breakfast Panel, hosted by Nova Systems, NIA, and Omni Executive. The panel was focused on the government's sovereign industrial capability priorities, generally referred to as SICPs, and the panel was moderated by Catherine Ziesing, Managing Editor of Australian Defence Magazine. The panellists were Rob Nia, Managing Director and Founder of NIA, John Hawkins, CEO of Omni Executive, and Jim McDowell, CEO of Nova Systems. Thanks to COVID restrictions, Jim was appearing via Zoom, which often led to issues with his sound and his ability to hear Kat's questions. Despite this and the clinking of cutlery on plates, the information presented by the panellists was enlightening and of great interest to the defence industry. We hope you enjoy this panel as much as we did. I guess what I'd really like to delve into with each of our panellists here this morning is um, while sovereignty is not an uncommon term when we talk about defence industry and national security and the national discourse, it's employed without qualification and there seems to be a a lack of meaningful engagement uh, among policymakers, analysts and commentators around what sovereignty is in practice. I'd really like to get a view from each of you about what does sovereignty in the context of the Australian defence ecosystem mean for each of you and your companies. Rob, could we start with you? Well, of course. I think that sovereignty, uh, the crux of sovereignty is control, and that control is manifest in supply line surety. You will see, you know, that element of control. You can apply that to the sovereign supply line control mechanism, and then you can look at within a company in control on investment decisions uh, within IP, ownership of IP and control of IP. If you then break it down to export opportunities, which will, you know, things that that will give you scale to be able to create a sovereign industry, it's about your ability to actually make a decision to for export. So it's the control of, of uh, in general, but also the, so the control as it's applied to each of those individual elements. Okay. And John, what's been your experience? From my perspective, sovereignty is about um, an Australian industry ecosystem from you know, small, medium and large companies uh, basically vertically integrated to try and achieve some of what Rob has just talked about, so supply chain surety and all those things. But I think it also goes uh, to ownership, to operations and to capability. And in relation to ownership, to me it means uh, is at least 51% of the firm owned by an Australian entity or an Australian individual. Uh, in relation to operations, is it run in Australia? Is it controlled by an Australian entity or an Australian individual? So is the foreign influence, it doesn't have such a a weighting as the Australian influence. And the last piece is the capability aspect where the the means, the people, the technology and the materials are actually captured within the Australian supply chain, the Australian sovereign sort of capability. I think the thing there is that I think ownership and operations is easily achieved. There are many companies out there that have that, and, and that includes you know, companies that are owned by or partially owned by a foreign company, but the Australian 51% is sort of maintained as a, as a, as a figure. Uh, but 
So ownership and operations is probably achievable, but the piece we, I think, need some help with, and it's about leveling the playing field, is uh, the capability aspect. So the means, I think it's, when I talked about the capability, I talked about means, people, technology, and materials. It's really about the means. It's about a level playing field that when you're competing with an overseas company, the playing field is level. There's no, it's not a different playing field, right? Jim, I know this has been a passion of yours for quite some time, and you, uh, you wrote in The Australian yesterday about what sovereignty means to you. Can you talk us through what it means, particularly for Nova, uh, in, in the wider context? Yes, uh, thanks very much. First of all, it's a fool's errand to try and define it for all time, for every circumstance. So, as Rob said, sovereignty means control. It doesn't mean access. It doesn't mean having a look at it. It doesn't mean being friendly with it. It means control. So that's the first part of the question answered. The second part then is how do you exercise that control? And again, I would agree with Rob that it is best exercised and most easily exercised by entities who are based in Australia, have Australian boards of directors, have, have complete Australian control of the allocation of discretionary resources, particularly capital, and so on. And then, so, so that's, that's the best way to do it. Are you always, in every case, going to be able to get that outcome? Unlikely. But in, in, in the event that you can get that outcome, you should. So it's a matter of how sovereign can you be, depending on the capability that you're trying to be sovereign over. For example, if it's combat aircraft, the chances of, of Australia and a, a wholly Australian business having control over all of the IP, with no. regard, for example, with regard to that, it's highly unlikely. Therefore, what's the best position you can get? And it's probably access and Australian jobs and all those other good things. On the other end of the spectrum, if you go to, for example, test evaluation system assurance, which happens to be something that we're particularly interested in, then I think the, uh, the, the Australian government should be trying to exercise as complete a control as they can over that, using those entities that meet the criteria that both, both Rob and I, and John may well have said it, I just couldn't hear him, uh, mentioned earlier. So that's in a nutshell the article I wrote in The Australian today. So, gentlemen, I, I guess expounding upon sovereignty, uh, government has done a lot of work in the policy space there uh, with the sovereign industrial capability priorities, and they're supposedly the result of rigorous assessment in a framework that looked at strategic issues, capability, resources, uh, and dimensions of industrial sovereignty. Uh, and they made judgments based on defence needs there. How is your strategy uh, evolving to position your businesses for the sick piece, and what advice can you give to other players interested in pursuing these? And what effect do you think the, the current Asia-Pacific geopolitical climate, um, what does that mean towards the rate of effort in how we deliver the sick piece? John, could I throw to you first? Yes, yeah, certainly. So uh, two questions there. I'll uh, try and answer the first one first. So firstly, uh, the sick piece, I think there's about 10 of them. Our business would focus typically on five, but primarily three, and I'll talk about them in a minute. But I suppose the point there is that there's no point in trying to focus on things that aren't your core business. That's the first aspect, right? So on the, on the, in the list of 10, pick the ones that you think you can do and you can do well and stick with them, right? So for example, just as uh, you asked some aspects here to share with people, uh, we would focus on ISR, deep aeronautical maintenance, and um, electronic warfare. So the ISR one, so what, what, what have we done there to try and focus on the sick peas? We have, we've hired 
additional engineering staff who have the requisite skills, knowledge and experience to take us to have certifications with CASA and 21M, 21J and uh, 145 certificates so that we can actually do some of the maintenance requirements for and, and the development and the design requirements for ISR. In submarines, we don't build submarines, right? Or design them or anything else. But you've got to pick that part of the supply chain that you can fit into. So part of our business is about security. So we have got ourselves into the future submarine supply chain in building skiffs and managing skiffs and allowing the Australian engineers and the US engineers who are part of it and the French engineers who are part of it somewhere where they can actually work and maintain, maintain sanctity on their IP. And the last piece, uh, aeronautical deep engineering. Once again, we have acquired a number of small businesses around Australia that have the necessary certificates of authority to do maintenance on aircraft so that we can meet those SICP aspects. Second part of the question, uh, the geopolitical aspects in Southeast, uh, in the Pacific. Well, the first thing I think about it is that I think we need to accelerate our development of the SICPs. It's immutable. Things are changing really, really fast, and it's about rel relevance. You can have a solution that'll be ready in three years or 10 years, but if it's needed in a year, it's not much use to you, right? So there's an acceleration aspect needed. I think also there's probably an increase in innovation, R&D, and probably advanced manufacturing needs to be come into the play there as well in order that that acceleration can occur. But overall, I think just we need to accelerate them and maybe even look at, have, a, have another scrub at the list of 10. Maybe we need to increase it or refine it. And Rob, obviously a lot of your business has been well placed around the particular sick peas. How, how does that affect your day-to-day -day business as well? So we're focused on the weapons and munitions, sick pea and the testing and evaluation. So we're pretty smack bang in the middle of uh, uh, the very first sick pea that was announced. Um, in, so, if I could, so, we, so we built infrastructure, we invested ahead of the game, we're putting a lot of personal money in, we're not waiting for government contracts. Um, we've taken that lead from defence and we've gone and invested and positioned ourselves so that we can then tender for and achieve things. If we did it the other way around, so there's a sick P, therefore business is going to come to us and then we're going to go and build infrastructure and capability, that wouldn't have happened as a smaller company. So as a smaller company growing, we, we did it. We took that government lead, invested, and, and Defence has rewarded us with, uh, and I think we've got a lot of good, hard-working people trying to achieve great outcomes for them, but we had to do it in that order. An, an interesting um, observation of the geopolitical change in, in relation to sick peas, if you look at the very first sick pea, which was weapon and ammunition, they were the first ones to also have an implementation plan. And if you read, if you bother reading that, because it's really exciting, and you get to the implementation plan, and it says, we will never make guided weapons in Australia. <laughs> And if you look about the changing geopolitical uh, position, um, I think we just had an announcement a couple of months ago from the uh, Prime Minister saying, we're going to make guided weapons in Australia. So things have changed, and that will change the sick peas. It'll certainly change the implementation plan. It may very well create a new sick pea. And so we, we do have to, we're in a different paradigm. Um, we're in a different situation than we were um, when Christopher did a magnificent job uh, on the sick peas, but it, things have changed and we will need a new focus on certain areas. Isn't that amazing though that we have gone from we're clearly not doing guided weapons to now we have a one billion dollar enterprise to support local manufacture. Uh, and if you look at the IIP and actually pick that apart, over the coming decade there's about $90 billion worth of missile programs in there across all the services. That's a serious amount of money which 
could be spent here in, in, a, in a meaningful way. And, and what about you, Jim? Um, the, the sick peas obviously play a role in your business as well. So I think uh, Nova's a, a, I can't try to figure out whether we're a big small company or a small big company, but we're somewhere in that middle ground where we know from the architecture and for many years we've known that we have lots of SMEs and we have half a dozen of the large overseas primes and we don't have sort of that much in between. And I guess I'm, I'd like to think of us as being one of that sort of middle layer in between that gives defence and government choice as to what it does insofar as you're big enough to be able to have access to capital and people and so on to really grow capability. What's the capability you should focus on, the one you're best at? What are we best at? Test evaluation and system assurance. So that's what we should focus on. The other thing I would say about testing evaluations and, and systems assurance is it takes us away from thinking in verticals of shipbuilding and submarine building and aircraft building and you know and making guns and making armored vehicles to what I refer to as the horizontal prime, and and that and that gives that gives control sovereignty over uh, over um, in fact all of the verticals. It gives it gives government an opportunity to exercise a level of control, but because test evaluation is ubiquitous across all of the domains, sea, land, air, and joint. And it's also enduring from acquisition to disposal. So what is, what is the best position we can put us and our only customer in with regard to what we are best at? And where in the value chain do you, would, would you want to be? In that particular case, I would see Nova as being right at, the, right at the top of the value chain. We've got enough scale and we'll get greater scale to give a sovereign solution to that horizontal prime of, t of test evaluation and systems assurance, uh, which gives access, it gives ubiquitous access and enduring access and enduring control of all of those elements. So that's how a couple of different ways, I think, to think about it. First of all, what am I good at? How can I get paid? Because you need scale. You need scale if you're going to be enduring. What's the relationship I should have with the customers to make that, to make sure that I have the confidence to make the investments and so on that Rob was talking about? And, and, and don't always think about about primes as being verticals, think occasionally in the horizontal. Jim, I'd really like to touch on that rate of effort question uh, for industry there. Uh, given our deteriorating uh, geopolitical climate in the region, do we have the agility in defence industry to answer the increased rate of effort that we're being asked to deliver to government? I think um, I think that's possible, uh, but uh, the, the, the constraining element if you like, the, the long pole in the tent or the critical path is, the, is access to people, is access to skilled and experienced people. And unless we enter into contracts and constructs, particularly in the service provision end of, of life, that uses our people better and more efficiently, then you've probably got no chance of, getting, of delivering the investment plan, never mind anything else. But, but with, with much more... Uh, imaginative and um, you know, ways of using our workforce, then I believe that we can have both the agility and the capacity to do that. Um, I've got a question for Rob around the manufacturing side of the house here. Uh, it seems that whenever defence uh, manufacturing is, is mentioned in the media, it's relation to controversy around building submarines, how we don't have a car industry anymore and the, the flow on effects from that. Uh, so the people in the room here know the, the broader picture, but can you give us your insights into the state of defence industry manufacturing in Australia 
and how industry are preparing for greater AIC and domestic manufacturing. Yeah, absolutely. I can give you a couple of quick uh, examples of what we're doing and also where I think some of the deficiencies are and the gaps at the moment. And uh, so I think we've got government policy setting is right. It's setting a business environment where people can establish manufacturing. And a quick example of that would be, uh, sorry, but I think that the defence layer, they are not trying to establish manufacturing in a lot of areas yet. Government is telling them to, and it's not yet transferred. We're not seeing that in actual decisions. And, and the example of that will be uh, defence goes out to tender. They want a capability. They want military off the shelf. So they're not doing an R&D program. So you therefore have to be buying something from overseas. And then defence does not demand that that be made here. Uh, but government policy says you should, good industry steward, make it here. We did that with the Land 17 with the artillery ammunition contract. We've got the best capability in the world. We've, we've found it. We've delivered it. Um, we've then gone and established, uh, we don't have the capability to make artillery shells in Australia, which is a problem with talk about supply chain surety and sovereignty and all of those things. So we then uh, built an artillery shell forging facility in Maryborough, Queensland, but the federal government, through a regional growth fund, supported that, not defence. And it didn't have the viability for the Australian defence customer. The only customer of that plant right now is the German military. So we brought an export customer to that to make it viable. We partnered with an international company who's very good, Rheinmetall, at doing that uh, inter internationalisation, if you like, or running um, centres of excellence around the world. And so we, industry, solved that problem. Defence never asked us to make that plant. So there's a gap. Defence is not looking for sovereign capability in that particular capability. They are now, and they've got it, and they're custodians of it, and they will use it, and they will benefit greatly from it. But it's the lessons, I think, and the point of a, a discussion like this is not to sit around and just chat about what's good. I think this is lessons learned. We've moved to a time where it's not about AIC. It's not about trying to give charity and jobs to Australians. This is about supply chain surety, sovereignty. We've got a job to do. Things have changed. We may have to look after ourselves. So I think that there needs to be some changes there. Um, and then the, um, just the last little bit on... So, so that's actually a good news story. Like you've taken you know, foreign supply through to domestic long-term supply chain surety, international partnerships, IP. It all works, so there is good news stories. In, at Benella, we, we, we inherited half of the Benella ammunition site. Hasn't, some of the buildings have never been used in 25 years, so we don't have capability yep. there. Um, Defence did not say to us, you must put in this, this, this and this capability. It was essentially a hands-off. You've got it, it's doing nothing. It's a sick pee, see how you go. And so we invested our own money with uh, Northrop Grumman's help. We established a 120 mil tank line, but NIA money, NIA owns the equipment, Northrop technology, we now have a, a tank line. No one asked us for that, we did that ourselves. Uh, with Rheinmetall, we've invested to make a medium calibre production line. No one asked us to do it, but we've now re-established medium calibre uh, production. Um, with Boeing appointing us as the weapon and munition partner, we're going to make American ammunition there for the Apache. No one's asked us to do that. So there's a gap between what government wants us to do, what I think we need for sovereignty, and what defence is doing at the moment. There is a bit of a gap there, as you say, Rob, and it is interesting to see how policy is changing to, to reflect perhaps how we address that gap. Do you think it's happening fast enough? Is it effective? 
So I've got a personal view on it. So we're not, so we do not have a policy within the Defence Department to try and make things in Australia in a lot of areas. We have a policy in government. And I think the signal to industry will be when Defence steps aside and puts an industrialist, industrialist consortium, a group that says, your job is to establish some industrial capability in the following areas. So step aside from the public service type, we're going to run things, we, we've got a job to do, we want these capabilities built and we want them done now. Step aside, let uniform people go and fight wars and do things, make industry responsible for delivering that capability. Previous conflicts, that's what happens. We're not at that stage. So the, the comforting part about that is that the threat assessment is it's not too urgent yet. And if that's the case, we all sleep you know, well in our beds. Uh, when it does get serious, they will say, we actually need to build some stuff. Um, uniformed people will appoint industrialists to do that. I guess that leads really well into our next question. Um, I'd like to throw to Jim on this one first, if I could. Um, how do you think the Australian government and Department of Defence invest in Australian industry to ensure that they're given a fair go out of the starting blocks? What are the pros and cons of, of picking winners in this context? Okay. Well, in the end, you always have to pick a winner. Uh, it's how you go about picking your winners. What's the process you use? Because, you know, every competition people enter is a winner, whether it's a CEP, whether it's a proper competition, whether it's a really obvious choice uh, and, and you can go to sole source. So we pick winners all of the time. It's how you go about doing it. And is that informed by industrial policy? And, you know, we are very, as, as a country, we're very loath, both sides of government, but particularly um, the liberal side to have an industrial policy. And if you look, if we compare ourselves to the, you know, the people we do business with, the people we are most associated with in defense economies, the UK, France, the United States, they have all set about setting an industrial policy in different ways. You know, in the UK, they've allowed the creation of a behemoth, which is called the AE Systems, who I used to work for and run their business here. And that and that 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 is is an that has been a deliberate industrial policy in the UK. In France, the government invests in at least most, if not all, of the major players. Thus, in every transaction, they are both the buyer and the seller. Uh, in, in the United States, you have a Buy America Act, you have the ITARs, you have the small business set aside, you have the ethnic set aside, and so on. So each each government has taken a deliberate policy, industrial policy, and tried to enforce it. We have kind of just said, okay, everybody, you're all welcome, uh, and and, and uh, we're not going to we're not actually going to have an industrial policy, and it could be any one of those things. And it seems to me that the sick P type approach is one way that we will be able to have an industrial policy that says these are the things that we're going to be, that we really want to control here, or control to the largest extent that we possibly can. Uh, and here's how we're going to intervene. We are the, we are the monopsonistic side of this market. We're the only buyer, and therefore we will use our demand side power to shape the control side for a national security outcome. And not only will we have the policy, but we will enforce that policy. It's the same strategy and planning, strategy and execution. Strategy is relatively easy, execution is relatively hard. In this case, I think we have a real opportunity with, a, with the sovereign capability to develop a proper industrial policy that allows the buyer to intervene to shape the supply side. John, you talked before about that level playing field. Do you think government is doing 
uh, a decent job in levelling that playing field for industry. Look, there's lots of talk, as, as Jim has mentioned there, there's lots of talk about the, the levelling, uh, and Rob's talked about it too, but I, I haven't seen it yet, right, to be frank. To be frank. I think it's coming. It obviously takes a while to permeate through the layers. And I, I mean, my point would be, it's, a, it's the sick, sick page, whatever, you want to, however, whatever vehicle you want to use, there needs to be a, a model that we can actually target what parts of Australian industry we're going we're gonna to bring up. And I, I get back to that ownership, operations, and capability piece. I think if you focused on those three areas, it would uh, go some ways towards it. I'll, I'll, I'll share an example uh, where we have, uh, on a number of occasions, been competing with overseas companies. Um, and we have to buy a major platform to actually create this capability. Um, but the overseas companies get a tax incentive from the country that they live in or that they, they are uh, ownershiped in. And the tax incentive is significant. It can be up to 40%. So when you have to buy the same platform from that company, from that country as well, there is no option. But your price, the, the price delta is extraordinary. Now that's what I'm talking about in leveling the playing field. I'm not asking for anything, any uh, advantage beyond anybody else, but when it comes to breaks that, are, that other companies are given from their host nation, I think there needs to be some consideration for that. Mm. And what's been your experience in that space, Rob? Oh, I'd, I would just say that there's not a civilised country on the planet that has left the development of their defence industrial base to chance. No one has just sort of thrown throwing things up uh, in the wind and see where it, where it lies. Australia is probably the closest to that. I mean, we've, we've picked a few things like submarines and, and the shipbuilding, I think, mm. gets pretty well looked after. But um, in general terms, we've had a hands-off uh, free market approach for the last 25 years, um, but no one else has during that mm. time frame. And there, there's much smaller economies than ours that, that have really detailed, complex businesses which we say we could never achieve, you know, if you, you focus on that missile piece again, there's lots of countries smaller than ours with smaller economies that have been making missiles for decades. Um, so that's a deliberate policy. Government decided that that's a, a sovereign capability they needed. They either invested in a company or they created a business environment or whatever. In Canada, they have 100% offset policies. Mm. No one leaves it to chance. Everything, you, you get exactly what you design. And so we've got to have a look at what we're designing. Everyone else is, and we need to work out what we want as a defence industry, and then we set that, we design it, we will achieve it. I uh, was chatting to a company on the floor yesterday down on the exhibition hall, a uh, fairly well-known medium-sized company, and they were saying that over the past 12 months they have put in bids for work in 24 different nations around the world, and only one of them does not have a formal uh, offset or defence uh, spending industrial strategy, and that is their home market. In every other market that they deal with internationally, they do not have a living level playing field and have to negotiate that. It will be interesting to see. I know former Minister Pine here is with us today, and uh, his announcement that Australia wanted to be a top 10 defence exporter within the decade. How are we going to deliver that, gentlemen? What do you think? Like, is we, we don't have that level playing field clearly. Do you think there is? Uh, an appetite to create one? How viable is it for Australian industry to compete in this context? 
will we be a top 10 defence exporter by 2030 even? Jim, what are your thoughts on this? I th- look, I, I, it's int- the top 10 thing sort of relatively interesting, but I'm not sure I would want on my gravestone I was number nine. Um, and so I think that's a relatively limited ambition, but, f- but we, are, we are starting from a, you know, from a pretty, pretty low base. Um, again, I would say uh, the, this is not uh, a market for comestibles or Mars bars or FMCG. The market that we're in is to do with national defence, and that is the first priority of government to keep its people safe. Therefore, I think it, it does... It needs to look at the playing field all of the time to see if mm. if the industrial settings are meeting the national goal. And I think we've arrived at a conclusion given the sovereign discussion that we're now having. And the sovereign discussion has now been proven to be a vital one, not just in the field of defence, but I mean, the whole thing's got its another set of legs because of COVID with regard to you know everything from face masks to toilet roll. So, so, so those, if we can, you know, if we can put a special effort into getting toilet rolls into supermarket shelves, I think it behoves us to make a special effort and to look at the playing field and to look at the policy settings to secure our national security. And, you know, as I said again in the, in the article today, this, you know, my father's house has many mansions and there is room in, in Australia to its eternal credit is committing much more to national defence than it has ever done in the past. And there is room for the for the big primes and there's room for all of the SMEs and we certainly need to create some people in the middle who have the scale to meet the defence needs, the sovereign defence needs of this country and also that will give you scale and therefore the ability to export and whether we're number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven or whatever it is, uh, I think we've got to start, if you don't, you know, if you don't start you can't finish And, and and the way we can start is around the policy settings to make sure we have a very healthy industrial base, primarily to meet our needs and secondarily to export. Rob, I might throw to you on this one. Um, you're, you've clearly started uh, your export business. Are we well positioned? Uh, we are. I think there's two, there's a couple of interesting options. Firstly, uh, the way that you get pretty quick wins is partnering with good, great, you know, international uh, primes, international companies, mm-hmm. setting up domestic manufacture and then going back through their supply chain. So we're having good success in that with Rheinmetall, with artillery ammunition and with uh, munitions into, into other areas uh, via them. We'd also have aspirations to link into the US. I think there's big opportunities for companies to link into the US um, supply chain as far as making things here, uh, either going back to solve some of their single source of supply issues or supply the, you know, the US um, contingency here in Australia. So I think there, there's some pretty quick wins and easy, good partnerships great companies, there's the appetite for that. If we want to stretch the thinking a bit, um, you'll also, you, you, you may recall under the Defence Export Strategy there was uh, a 3.8, 3.8 or 2.8, it's only a billion, say $3.8 billion uh, allocated into a fund with EFIC, the Export Finance Investment Corporation, on the national interest account. I think if you go into an order of that, there might be 100 million out of the 3.8 billion used over the last three, four years. Yep. And so if we want to be a top 10 defence exporter, the first thing I'd say is, yes, we can, but we need to decide we are actually going to do it. And then you can do it, first step, through these partnerships. Second step is, why don't we use some of that money to get Australian companies to go and acquire other companies? You will become a a top 10 player instantly within your set field. 
So we're not thinking laterally about the objective or we're not actually focusing on the objective. So we either decide we want that as an objective or we don't. If we do, then let's just go and do it and there'll be multiple ways to do it. There's bucket loads of money there to do it and we can bring the people that have got the appetite to achieve it, but we need that leadership and we need drive and we need someone that wants to actually achieve something. And, and lastly, John, what about you? In a, in a, I guess a, from a services approach rather than a product approach, how, how do you export that? Well, firstly, we do, we, we do both, right? So yeah. we would, we'd like to, to do both. Uh, but the services is a, is a more difficult uh, option to uh, go and sell. However, it's probably easier to get a Defence Export Control Office approval to sell, Correct. strangely enough. Uh, so we have, we've had interaction overseas recently where to sell a product is a lot more onerous through Defence Exports than it was to actually sell a service that might have included the product, if you understand me. Um, but just to touch on the, on the first question, I think there is enough room here for, pri for, for overseas firms, for Australian small and medium enterprises. Mm. I mean, Marcus Hillier had a great presentation at the ADM yes. uh, conference in Canberra recently, where he talked about currently Australian industry, and including overseas parts of that industry, need to eat 2.5 billion a year. In 10 years from now, we have to eat, or we have to consume 25 billion of the defence market. There's enough room for everybody to play in this space properly. Mm. But I think, talking on the, touching on the export piece, uh, it's almost a parallel journey. If you get your Australian industry content sovereignty piece right, your, in, your export options increase at the same level, at the same uh, rate. And I think one of the countries I'd like to sort of highlight is uh, Sweden. Sweden has got an extraordinarily great export industry, uh, defence industry. They generate 3.5 billion euros a year in uh, defence capability. They export 65% of it. They're the 16th largest exporter in the world. They've got about 8 million people. We have 25 million people. Um, they, they did that on the back of not wanting to align with the Soviet bloc or the NATO, NATO alliance. And it's a great good news story. And I mean, there's other countries as well, like Israel, which exports 80% of its uh, uh, defense capability. So I suppose my message would be, if you get the sovereign piece right and you build Australian onshore industry, you have the capacity to do the exporting as well. I think it's been really interesting over the last 12 months, government's done a lot of thinking on this. Uh, so the committee, the Joint Standing Committee for Foreign Affairs, Defense and Trade, uh, led by Senator David Fawcett, looked into supply chain resilience, uh, which has been highlighted by COVID, so particularly in a health context, but also in a defence context. I think everyone in this room here has an experience over the last 12 months where COVID has mucked up their supply chain or increased their international freight to a point where your eyes began to water and your accountant cried. But we are, I think we're learning a lot of lessons from this period as well. Uh, what we do well, what we need to improve on, and what resilience actually looks like. The, the companies represented here on this panel are doing amazing things all around the country in test and evaluation, in cyber, in NEW, in ammunitions. And uh, I think this event has really shone a light on what sovereignty could look like. There's a few different models of how we could approach it uh, and the international benchmarking that we could achieve with the right policy settings 
would just be immeasurable, I think. Uh, Defence is an important part of our economy and society, uh, despite what some of the protesters out the front would have you believe. Um, and it is really wonderful to get the chance once again, uh, for the first time in about 18 months, to gather as a group, as a community, to share our insights and our knowledge. Uh, with that in mind, if you could please join me in thanking the gentlemen for their insights this morning. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. Thank you.